Welcome to the Defender Bible Study, a weekly encouragement to equip the body of Christ through the study of Scripture and prayer to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children around the world. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, where we believe that defending the fatherless begins by being rooted in God's Word. It's Monday, September the 2nd. 2019 and today is Labor Day and so because today is Labor Day we thought we would bring you a special Defender Bible study so today uh, I will be presenting a message that I was able to preach at Northport Baptist Church in Northport Alabama on pride taken from Luke chapter 9 verses 46 through 48 we hope you enjoy this message Well, it's a delight to be here this morning with my family, and it's good for us all to be back together. Last week, we were all separated. Uh, Adeline and I, my 12-year-old, were in Uganda uh, in a slum outside of Kampala called Busega. And so this morning when we showed up and the air had not yet been turned on, we felt right at home. Uh, so many of you were hot. We, we just felt like this was our acclimation back to air conditioning. And so I can also attest uh, to your pastor coming home from Austria. We were on a similar time zone. And uh, the first night I was back, Thursday night, apparently I did some crazy things. And so uh, for the sake of your pastor's witness, just let him stay at home. No one try to call him. Uh, fortunately, I don't think I did anything too crazy, but apparently I started singing a third day song from the late 90s uh, and had no clue that I was doing so. So... That time zone got me mixed up, and uh, give your pastor some space, and he'll get back in. Our son Caleb last week was studying the book of Judges at Precept, K. Arthur's teen Bible study week, and he had a great week. And so Ashley and Emily, our nine-year-old, were holding down the fort in Birmingham. And so we're just grateful to be together and grateful to be here with you this morning. We are going to open up God's Word, and so if you have a Bible or a smartphone, an e-reader or a tablet or whatever you may have, if you'll go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 9, we're going to finish this, or not finish this morning, we're going to resume this morning the series that you're doing on the book of Luke as a church. And I know the last couple of weeks there's been a hiatus in that, but we're going to pick right back up in Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking specifically this morning at verses 46 through 48. But in a way of introduction, I do just want to remind us as we're jumping in after two weeks, kind of where we are in this book, what Luke chapter 9 is doing. And I think a lot of this introduction, while hopefully it's not mundane and just a review, hopefully it'll actually lead in and set the table for what we're going to see in verses 46 and 48. And so just as a, a way of reminder, remember that Luke was a physician and he wrote this book. And so he was, had a lot of detail that he gave to this book. Uh, Luke was, was looking, actually, he wrote this book to Theophilus. If you don't know how to say that name, he's okay if you call him Theo. So he was writing this book to a guy named Theo, which actually meant in Greek, a friend of God. And so what we believe is that Luke wrote Luke and Acts in order basically to let the Greeks and the Jews to know that what Jesus claimed was true. It was truth. He's very detailed in his analysis, right? We, a lot of times when someone comes to Christ, we tell them to write John. John is very eloquent in his writing. He's very storytelling-like in his writing. Luke is very precise. This happened, and this is the way it happened. And so then he wrote Acts. A lot of people give Paul a lot of credit for the New Testament. Luke actually wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else because he wrote this two-volume of the Gospel of Luke and then of Acts. If you remember at the end of Matthew, 
He gives the Great Commission, and one of, its, one of the parts of the Great Commission is it says, teach them all that I have commanded you. Luke is a great place to go to say, well, what did Jesus teach us? There's this a great place of God's teaching, and we see that ultimately Acts 17, 11 kind of encompasses and compilates these uh, two books, Luke and Acts, and it tells us kind of the purpose for these books. And it says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Luke wrote this book so that we could have confidence that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was who he said he was. Luke doesn't hold back any punches, and even as we look back, some review in Luke chapter nine. Luke chapter nine. We're going to see that Luke is very precise. So let's jump in as again as a way of review. Let's look first at, at verses eighteen through twenty-five because I think this really gives us a, a punch for what we're going to look at this morning when we get to Luke forty-seven. So starting in verse eighteen, it says this. Now it happened that as he, being Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, "Who do the crowds?" say that I am. Okay, so when we get into verse 19, this is how you know that Luke wasn't just trying to say something or, or trying to impress the reader, but he was, he was really being truthful. Listen to what the response is. And they answered, John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets of old that is written. Right, so Luke could have just said, they say you're the Messiah, they say you're Jesus, they say you're the Christ. But Luke is precise. Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet. Right? So then verse 20, he makes it personal, and he points to them, and he says, well, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one this, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So the true question we see that's asked here is Luke chapter 9 verse 20. But who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly says, you're the Christ of God. Matthew 16, 16 reports Peter's words this way. It says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And as we know, Jesus Christ was not his name, right? I just got back from Uganda and we had to fill out paperwork to immigrate into Uganda, into the United States. And it asked, what's your name? And I say, Herbert Newell. Adeline said, Adeline Newell. Jesus' last name was not Christ, People didn't go around and say, hey, Mr. Christ, right? Christ meant that he was the Messiah. He was the chosen one. He was the one who had come to save. So Peter says, you're the one that came to save. You are the son of the living God. And so Peter confesses this, and then Jesus reveals the true nature of his mission. What was it? To suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and to be raised on the third day. Well, this probably took these disciples in shock. This is not what they were expecting. Right? The Jews were looking for Jesus to come be the next great world leader. They were looking at him to be the savior of the Jewish people. They were looking at him to be the conquering king that would come and set them in their rightful place. They were looking for Jesus to come and make Israel great again. Right now we're going through a, another electoral cycle in the United States of, of America, another federal election. If you have ignored it, 
then you may have missed that there are about 74 to 78 Democratic candidates lining up to vie for that party's nomination. There are so many of them that when it came time for them to debate, they had to break them up into two groups, and even some didn't even get to make it to the debate. Now imagine today, going through this next presidential election, that one of these candidates comes up and says, you know what, when I get to D.C., here is my plan. Okay, I'm going to suffer They're going to make fun of me. They're going to flog me. They're going to put me out in the middle of the streets, and then I'm going to die. God bless America. We're probably not going to vote for that candidate. That's probably not the one that we're looking for, especially if they don't have a good vice presidential pick, right? Because we know, well, that guy ain't going to be the president. It's going to be the vice president, right? So we're probably not going to vote for that person. But this is what Jesus is saying, and you know that the disciples had to be scratching their heads like, who is this guy? He's saying he's going to Jerusalem to be rejected, to be killed, and to be raised on the third day. But here's the deal that we don't want to miss. Jesus didn't come to be the next world leader. He didn't come to make Israel great again. He came to save people from their sins. He came to save people from themselves. The hope that he came to proclaim is that the grave could not contain him. And he rose victoriously and defeated sin and its penalty, death. But we see in our passage, and we're going to see even when we get to our main passage, the disciples did not get it. They missed it. They missed the whole point. And honestly, beloved, we do too. Many times we miss the point. We as the church are not to be the culturally relevant. We as the church are not to be the ones that are praised. We as the church are not the ones that get the highest seats in uh, our society. But we are the ones that that are to humble ourselves, to take up our cross, to die daily, and to follow Christ. And so that's why we see, again, Jesus has to remind them of his mission. Look at verse 43. So he's already told them, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. And by the way, guys, I'm going to be going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And then he has to say it again. Look at verse 43. But while they were all still marveling at everything that he was doing. So they are just absolutely all inspired about these miracles, right? Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. Beloved, Jesus didn't come in order to make his disciples famous. He didn't come to show off a bunch of miracles. He wasn't some traveling magic act that came and said, whew, Bring me some fish and some bread, and I'll feed 5,000. He wasn't just here to, to heal the blind and to heal the lame. As a matter of fact, those were temporal things. Think about this. Blind Bartimaeus, who he gave him his sight, blind Bartimaeus can't see today. Do you know why blind Bartimaeus can't see today? He's dead. It was a temporal healing in order to show the divine power of God. Why? Not to heal you temporally, not to give you what you need in a temporal sense, but to eternally save your soul. This is why Jesus came. And so we see these three overarching themes in Luke chapter 9 that is going to lead us to our passage. One, we see the divine identity of Christ being made known. He wasn't a national leader. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. He had come to rescue people from their sins. But, but second, we see the dedicated mission of Christ. He came not only to heal temporal needs, but to bring eternal salvation. And then third, we see the devoted service commanded by Christ. He commanded us to take up our cross, to follow him, and get the message of the gospel to those who were perishing. And those themes bring us to our passage today to show us that the disciples still didn't get it. They were looking for a crown, and Jesus was presenting them a cross. They didn't want the cross. They wanted the crown. 
Jesus didn't want the crown. He wanted the cross. And that's what leads us to this. So look at verse 46. So you've got all this talk about denying yourself, take up your cross. Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to Jerusalem to, to be persecuted, to suffer. And verse 46, an argument arose among them, being the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. Listen to these knuckleheads. Jesus is going, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. They're fighting over who's going to be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. We see Jesus' disciples and his followers. He's discipling them to be servant leaders and to have humility. You see, the Bible hates pride. The Bible absolutely detests pride. As a matter of fact, why does it test pride? Because it separates people from the all-satisfying goodness and glory of God. Pride separates people from the all-satisfying grace, goodness, and glory of God. We see in Isaiah, that's, that's what Satan's initial sin. Lucifer was an angel. He was an angel of light. And what was his sin? Pride. And that pride is what ended up bringing his fall. Look at Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15. It's on the screen. This is about Satan. It says this, How you were fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low. Listen to what Satan said. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. But Jeremiah says this about Lucifer. No, you will be brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Beloved, pride is a sin that the Bible hates, and pride is what absolutely took Lucifer, an angel of light, to make him a demon of darkness, the devil, Satan himself. And don't don't miss it. Satan still uses this sin, the same sin he struggled with, to tempt you and I, to draw us aside and to draw us away from God. We see in Genesis chapter 3, that's what he tempted Adam and Eve with, right? God had said, you are not to eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. What does Satan say in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 3? You will not surely die. He looks at Adam and Eve and says, yeah, you're not going to die. God, God doesn't know what's best for you. You're not going to die. You, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What, is, what do Adam and Eve do? They take the fruit and they eat it. Why? Because pride was so intoxicating. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to know good and evil. They wanted to, to be exalted. This is the sin of pride. And then Jesus, Jesus is even tempted with the same sin, except he didn't succumb. Matthew chapter 4 tells us in verses 8 and 9, So the devil takes him, being Jesus, to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. We know that Jesus will look at Satan in the face and says, The word also says that you shall have no other God but God alone, and you shall not worship any other God but God. And he says, Be gone, Satan, and Satan flees from him. But don't miss it. Even to Jesus, Satan brings this temptation of pride. You see, beloved, we too are being tempted each and every day in this culture, in this society, by Satan to be prideful, to be self-centered, and to be the God of our own lives. We're being tempted to replace God with ourselves. And this culture, 
this culture brings pride to the forefront, right? We have legalized abortion and call it a woman's right to choose. Even those that are for abortion will say, how in the world could you ever interfere with a woman and her right to choose or, or anyone's right to choose? Why? Because we want to think we're autonomous beings that get to make our own course, that get to go our own way. We legalize things because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Truth is no longer defined by a standard, but whatever as we deem is right for ourselves. And so, beloved, I want us to see this morning, unless our pride is crushed by the Holy Spirit's conviction and ultimately we are led to repentance, we will be hopelessly lost and wondering. And Jesus saw that in his disciples. He saw them fighting over who would be greatest. He saw them jockeying for position. And ultimately, what was at the heart of them wanting to know who was the greatest? They wanted to be exalted. But beloved, if we're going to be saved... That is a glorious conquering of our pride. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in the spirit are those that understand we bring nothing to our salvation. We bring nothing to the table to impress God. Just like this song that we had at the table, we bring it all to God. Why? Because there ain't nothing he ain't ever seen before. We realize that in ourselves there is nothing, there is no disaster in our lives that God hasn't seen before. But beloved, even after salvation, even after coming to Christ, we still struggle with pride. We still struggle with wanting to be noticed and applauded. There are many times we live in a way that we still have to act like we have to earn our salvation. Or our pride leads us to live for ourselves and our own self-righteousness. Beloved, I want us to know that pride dies hard. And we have to continually fight it if we want to see it vanquished in our lives. But God uses trial and suffering to bring humility and sanctification. This is what James says in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Beloved, Jesus may bring trial into your life to sanctify you and to take away and to, to etch out that pride. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuous of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Trials ultimately bring humility. And humility is the opposite of pride. Beloved, I want you to know this morning, humility is not just thinking bad about yourself or poorly about yourself. It's not an Eeyore type of mentality. It's not going up to someone and saying, wow, I really messed that up today, in order for them to say, that wasn't that bad. That, that, that was okay. That was actually pretty good. Right? The Eeyore mentality is really just me coming and saying something as pitiful about myself as I possibly can so that you can bring me back up. And it has self right in the center. No, biblical humility is when we stop thinking about ourselves. And we think only of the glory of God and of others. And, 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 and this is not what these disciples were doing. No, they were arguing about which of themselves was to be the greatest. And they were, they were actually hanging around the greatest. Jesus, the Messiah, he was the greatest. And they're arguing about who will be the greatest. Beloved, we need to be careful because pride leads us to comparison. It leads us to comparison. Sometimes that's outward, 
comparison. Oh, well, I, I did this. I have this accomplishment. Or, well, I'm not as bad as that person. For whatever reason, Sundays have become the day that we clean out our van and our kids hate it. And a lot of times if they don't want to clean out the van, they'll say, well, have you seen so-and-so's van? Our van isn't anywhere near as bad as their van. Right? And they'll compare. And comparison is all trying to put yourself above someone else. And this is what pride does. The hardest three words in the English language, I was wrong. And knowing that I, I, I had this passage this morning to preach, the Lord decided to put me to a test this morning. We woke up early in order to get here on time for the first service, and my son Caleb, he's 14, he has many jobs in our neighborhood and dog jobs, and one of the dog jobs he has is our cross-the-street neighbor, and so as I'm waking everyone up, because I woke up at 4.30, because I just got back from Uganda, and I'm living on a different time zone, I'm waking everybody up, and I wake up my wife, and she says, you better go get Caleb, you know it takes him a while to get up. So I go on up there, and my assumption is he has a dog job. So I said, Caleb, you need to get up and go across the street and feed the dog. So he gets over to the cross the street and realizes there's no key, there's no way to get into the house, and he comes back over and he says, what are you, what are you saying? Mom, I can't get in the house, we need, I need help, i got to feed this dog. And Ashley says, Caleb, you don't have a dog job this morning. Well, Daddy told me we did. Well, I had gotten my son up in a panic, he'd rushed up, go across the street, so I had to look at him and go, buddy, I was wrong. Right? It's hard to say that we are wrong. It's hard to admit that we are, 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 are failures. If, we're, if we get into a fight with someone, what's our, first, what's our first response? Well, if you hadn't done this, and that is pride eating out and killing our relationships. The Bible says that God blesses and uses humility. And God instructs us to give grace to the humble. James says this, James 4, 6-7, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so we see in Luke 9, 46, the, the disciples were arguing. They're arguing all the way. There's a parallel passage in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And this is what it says. It says, and they, and they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? Do you love how Jesus does that? He absolutely knows what they were doing, but he asked them anyway. It's like the mom that, that the kid comes in with chocolate all over their hands and says, what were you eating? They know it's chocolate. They just want the kid to admit that it was chocolate. And Jesus says, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on their way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve in. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put them in his midst of them, taking them in his arms, and he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus was addressing their competitive spirit. They were more interested, like we said, in a crown than in the cross. And so surrendering our pride and clothing ourselves in humility is important for two reasons that we see from this passage. First, pride ruins unity by destroying relationships. Jesus had brought these disciples then. He was, he was pouring into their lives in order that they may one day go and tell of his greatness. He was going to die. He was going to raise from the dead. And he was going to ascend to the Father in heaven. And he was going to leave this ragtag band to take this gospel message to the nations. He needed unity. But pride was destroying their unity and destroying their relationships. Being critical and judgmental ultimately brings disunity. 
always wanting your own way, demanding that you are right, will destroy relationships. This is what Paul David Tripp says in his popular devotional, New Morning Mercies. He says, pride always destroys a relationship. It causes you to feel more entitled and to be more demanding than serving and giving. It drives you to insist on control. It makes you have to be right. It forces others to submit to your lordship. Pride is an anti-relational way of having a relationship. Humility is the godly way. You see, pride generates unhealthy competition where we are looking to outrank others. We live in a world of titles, rank, and fierce competition. But humility is focused on others while pride reveals the sin of the heart. But the second reason and and, and the most important reason that we need to to compete and to to fight the pride in our lives is that pride destroys our communion with God. Pride destroys our communion with God. Why? Think about it. If I'm always thinking I'm the greatest, if if I think that I need to be elevated, if I put myself on the throne of my own life, then I am competing with the position that only God deserves. Proverbs 16, 18 through 19 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of lowly spirit with a poor man than to be divided with the, divide the spoil with the proud. Pride is seeking to put ourselves in the place that only God deserves. It's fighting and warring with his authority and his rightful place in our lives. That's why Jesus knew this. He, he, he knew this and he, he uses this illustration of a child. Why? Because children as a whole don't have anything to bring. Right? Think, think about a baby for a moment. A baby that, that its mom brings it to bottle. That baby can't get that bottle on its own, right? And if it tried, it would, it would fail miserably. Think about a baby that soils its diaper. That baby ain't changing its own diaper, right? It needs someone to help them. That baby is dependent. Jesus brings in a child to say, you must be dependent upon me. Stop trying to think that you can do this yourself. Stop trying to think that you can master your own journey or your own way. Be dependent like a child. And so we see that Jesus, through this passage, is teaching three lessons on how to deal with our pride. Three lessons. The first is, recognize who you really are. Recognize who you really are. The first way to to, to fight pride in your life is to recognize who you really are. Again, what a perfect song. Come to the table. Realize he ain't, I don't know how it says, but he ain't ever seen it before. He's, he ain't, it ain't nothing he ain't ever seen before, right? Jesus has seen it all. He knows your messiness. He knows your dirtiness. He knows the secrets in your head that no one else knows. He knows the bitterness. He knows the resentment. Bring it to the cross. Winston Churchill once remarked about one of his competitors in Parliament. He said this, He was a humble man, and he had every reason to be so, right? This is what he said about his competitor, but beloved, this is really about us. We need to be humble. Why? Because we have every reason to be so. The prophet Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 3 through 8, it says this. It says this about us. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves committing iniquity. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, for what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully, and with his mouth each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush. Oh, is that not a picture of today and a picture of humanity? We speak out one thing with our mouth, and we plot something else with our heart. Beloved, know who you really are. You can't fool the author, the creator, and the ruler of this universe about who you really are. He knows who you are. And you know what? He went all the way to the cross knowing exactly who you are. Jeremiah would say that our righteousness is but filthy rags. That while we were yet sinners, the New Testament said that Christ died for us. That's why Jeremiah concludes in in, in chapter 17, verse 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Beloved, the first part of killing pride is recognizing who we really are and owning up to our own sin, owning up to our idolatry, and owning up to our rebellion against God. But that leads us to the second lesson of dealing with pride, and that is we recognize God's greatness. We recognize God's greatness. Look at the humility of Christ in Luke chapter 9. We went through this, and he asked them, who do, you, who do people say I am? Who do you think I am? He tells them, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. He, he foretells his death and says, I'm going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. And, and he has to tell them again, and they don't understand. And then they go on the road in verse 46. They're arguing about who will be greatest. And then look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. You might miss this if you're just reading through Luke chapter 9 and the significance of what this says. But it says, when the days drew near for him, this being Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is looking away around at these fumbling, bumbling people that are surrounding him, that are fighting over who would be greatest. And he looks at them and says, they're the reason I'm here. These prideful sinners, this is the reason I'm here. (coughs) This is the reason that I came. I came to give my life as a ransom for them. I came to go to the cross to die for them because it's the only way. They're not going to save themselves. While they were fighting over who would be the greatest, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to the cross. glorious. And this ultimately shows us the greatness of God. Jesus is the true picture of humility. That while we were yet sinners, while we were prideful, Jesus, the greatness of God, surrendered his rightful place. Equality with God. He didn't, he didn't grasp it as something, but humbled himself the point of death. Paul tells us about the great humility of Christ in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Look at this on the screen. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above all names and every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, if you want to conquer pride in your life, first, realize who you really are, but number two, realize the greatness of God. That he didn't grasp equality with God, but he emptied himself to come and to serve you. We fight pride by realizing and recognizing the greatness of God, but third, the third way that we fight pride and the third lesson we see of pride is we reorient our life to God's mission. Jesus was the most valuable person in the crowd by a long shot. He could have fulfilled his mission without James and John, who would fight who gets to sit on the right and who gets to sit on the left. He could have done this mission without Peter, who denied him three times and was so brash that he jumps out of the boat to walk on the water and then loses faith in an instant and starts to drown. He could have done it without Judas Iscariot. He could have done it without every single one of the disciples. But he chose them to go on mission with him. And beloved, he chooses you if you were redeemed in him, to go on mission with him. One way to, to reorient your life is reorient your life on God's mission, and that will fight pride. I mentioned that Adeline, my 12-year-old, and I were in Uganda. One of the things that Lifeline does in Uganda is we uh, partnered with a local church, King Jesus Church, to start a school for the deaf and the blind. And in Uganda, if you are deaf and blind, it is very, very expensive for you to go to school. And uh, this church works in a slum community of Busega, and it's a predominantly Muslim community. And many of these kids are born deaf and blind, and their parents desert them on the streets, or at, at the very least, the dad will leave the family. Why? Because if you follow the religion of Islam, they believe that the blind and the deaf are accursed by God. They believe that anybody that's not perfect is an accursed by God. And so fathers will leave their families in order to get away from the curse. And I met this little boy named Adam when he was seven years old, ten years ago. He didn't have a name. He'd never been to school. He didn't know how to communicate. He didn't know how to read. And he didn't know how to write. And ten years later, Adeline and I were at a Bible study. And I walked in. And there was Adam with the Word of God open, reading actually from Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. He was reading out of Luke because they were studying that in their Bible study. And I saw as a, a member of the congregation was signing to Adam so that he could understand the words that were saying. And I, I, I couldn't help it. I, I just started weeping. Why? Not because there was anything great I had done or anything great that Lifeline had done or anything great that this church had done, but because of the all-surpassing greatness of our God. Adam knew his name. Adam knew how to read and write. Adam was able to praise the Lord. Adam was able to answer questions about his relationship with the Lord. Adam was no longer in a Muslim family. He had now led his mom and his sister to Christ. This is not a work of hands of men. This is the work of the hands of our God. And when you start to reorient your life to the mission of God, you start to see God do miracles that you have to look at yourself and say, there's no way I could have accomplished that. There's no way I could have done that. It is only by the all-surpassing greatness of our God. He's the greatest, and if he is the greatest, then we humble ourselves to his mission. If we don't stay on mission, we can't stay on message. We think that we have a great message for this world. If we want to have the message, and the message wants to be relevant, then we need to stay on mission. 
Beloved, this is why the church is becoming so weak in our culture. The church has lost the mission of Christ. And so our message has become weak and stale. We have replaced our abiding love for Christ, the gospel, and the Bible with our own pride. And it's my prayer as a congregation, we will stay on mission and be known by our humility and our service for others. That we will be known by sending out those to Puerto Rico and others to Kentucky and sending out on mission with Christ. If we want to fight pride, we need to know who we really are, we need to recognize God's greatness, and we need to reorient our life to Christ's mission. And on this mission, this is what we need to do. Jesus wants us to first live prayerfully. And so as we reorient our life on God's mission, here's the way that we stay on mission. First, we live prayerfully. Ephesians 6.18 says, Praying at all times, in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. When you reorient your life on God's mission, you start to realize there's nothing good in you. You need the all-surpassing greatness of God, and so you pray, you live prayerfully. But number two, you walk carefully. We're careful. We're careful with the way we walk. We're careful with the way we operate. Ephesians 5.15 says this, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. And so we live prayerfully on mission. We walk carefully on mission. And then third, we seek his kingdom first. We seek his kingdom first. As we reorient our life on mission to fight pride, we have to pray that the Lord would keep us grounded. We have to walk carefully because those are watching. And then we have to seek first his kingdom. Matthew six thirty three. but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And when we do this, when we live prayerfully on God's mission, when we walk carefully on God's mission, and when we seek him first in this mission, we have two huge promises. First, no labor will be in vain. When we, when we live prayerfully, when we walk carefully, when we seek first the kingdom of God on this mission, we know that no labor will be in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 promises this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And second promise we have when we live prayerfully, walk carefully, and seek first the kingdom of God on God's mission is the Lord will entrust you with more in the life to come. Beloved, you will not give away or give up anything that the Lord will not repay in the life to come. Last week I was in Uganda, like I said, and I was preaching at King Jesus Church. And there are men and women who literally come with nothing. They wear their absolute best to Sunday. They dance like they have never danced before, praising King Jesus. And I, my text last week was Acts chapter 14 and talking about suffering. And I looked among the crowd and I realized these brothers and sisters have given everything to be at church. Many of them gave a day's wage just to get on a, a boda boda, a motorcycle, in order to worship at God's house. I'm looking at them at suffering and saying, you can never outgive God. You can never outsuffer the goodness and the grace of God. And then I come back to America and I look at our, influent, our affluence. And I'm afraid that many times we're living for this life and not a life to come. Beloved, this is not what God intended. This life is just a vapor, it's just a mist, but we are living for a life to come. That's why Matthew 25, 21 says this, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. 
enter into the joy of your master. Oh, this is not saying that we're going to get more riches on earth. This is saying that we have an inheritance to come that will be more joyful than anything that we could ever see, that we could ever know, and that we could ever taste. So there's one more parallel passage. There's Luke chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and then there's Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 5, that's, that gives the same uh, vignette of the disciples arguing about among the greatest. This is what Matthew's gospel says about this same passage. Verses 1 through 5. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. You see, Jesus brings this child in their midst to teach them two primary lessons about the mission ahead for them. First, we are to become like children ourselves. This church is not just the assembly of the chosen, it's assembly of the childlike. Jesus says in verse 4 that we are to have childlike humility. He who humbles himself like this child. Right? Like we said before, a baby's not going to look at its mom and say, I got the bottle thing handled, I don't need to be changed. It's utterly dependent. Children are okay that their parents pay for a meal. Ask these students over here, do you want to pay for lunch today or do you want your parents to pay for lunch? Many of them just say, I'll be just fine when my parents paying for lunch. They're fine being dependent. But then when it comes to matters of God, so many times we fight for our independence. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be on mission with me, become like children yourselves. Humble yourselves. To become a citizen of the kingdom, you must become a child of the king by turning from yourselves and turning and trusting in a father. And this brings us to the second lesson we learn about children in this passage. Not only are we to become like children ourselves, we are to serve children through the gospel. Beloved, we rely on God's fatherly care to supply all of our needs so that in turn we can supply the needs of others. And what does children mean? Children are the most vulnerable in the society. This is the poor, the needy, the orphan, the helpless Jesus is basically saying, you are to serve the poor, the needy, the helpless, and the vulnerable. Caring for children has been the mark of the church since the church was birthed in the book of Acts. The Apology of Aristides in AD 125 said this about the church. Listen to these words, and, and I pray that these words could still be said in 2019 about the church of a holy God. It says this, they do not worship strange gods, and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows they do not turn away their esteem, and they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. Beloved, the early church understood that the chief component of the mission of God on their lives was to serve children, was to serve the vulnerable, and was to serve orphans by showing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in closing... One side that pride is vanquished in our lives is that we start to live a thankful life in servants to the most vulnerable through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to close with three ways that I believe you can practically begin to help the vulnerable and the children in your midst. Number one, be available. We must be available to the most vulnerable in and around us. Let us be a people who are completely open 
and, and open-handed and open-hearted to those that are less fortunate around us, to the vulnerable, to the poor, to the orphan, to the widow, to the foster child. Invest time by having fun with vulnerable children, by inviting them into your home, by, by having a meal. Recently, my son Caleb and I invested in the lives of three of the neighborhood kids in our neighborhood. I'm not going to get into a lot of details, but they were doing some foolish things, which showed they probably lacked a little home training. And so we brought them up, and we said, that we have a basketball goal. Would you like to play basketball with us? There were three of them. There were Caleb and I. We played a little two-on-three. I'm proud to say, a little prideful moment. We beat them 24 to nothing, but that's not for this topic. But what we did do is we, we poured into their lives. As we played basketball, we started to, to talk to them. We started to invest in them. You know, much to my wife's chagrin, they started to come back the day after and the day after to play more basketball. Unfortunately, I wasn't there, so she had to deal with them. But, but we need to be available for children. We need, to, we need to be available. We need to set aside our calendar. We need to set aside our, our, our schedule. Are we willing to sacrifice our schedule and our time on behalf of the poor, the needy, the vulnerable, and a child? But the second way that we can practically help children and the vulnerable is to love and care for single parents and vulnerable families. I had the great opportunity earlier this year to get to go to Montgomery two times to testify, first in front of the House and second in front of the Alabama Senate. We were testifying on the new abortion bill, and I was one of five who had the opportunity to give testimony to the House of Representatives and to the Senate about why we believe that abortion needed to be illegal in our state. One of the questions that hit the core by one of the opponents of the bill, it hit the core and it really, it actually asked me, are we? And the question was this, what will the church in Alabama do when abortion is really illegal to start to care and love for single parents? As that question came, I, I wondered, church, are we really ready? Are we ready for abortion to be illegal? Are we ready to care for single moms and vulnerable families? Are we ready to show the love of Christ to them as much as we are pregnant moms that we hope will choose life for their babies? Are we willing to have life with these families after birth and after the maternity ward? One of the ways that you're going to get to answer that is in the fall, Northport Baptist is going to start a program called Families Count. It's a six-week parenting class, and you invite families from Tuscaloosa County who have lost their kids to foster care. One of the last things they have to do to get their kids back is go through a parenting class. And right here at Northport Baptist, you're going to have the opportunity to invite families from many difficult situations into your church. You're going to have the opportunity to feed them a meal. You're going to have an opportunity where one family will get to teach them parenting skills bathed in the Bible and the gospel. And then many of you will get to walk life alongside them as a mentor. One such family that recently went through this class, we'll, we'll call them Cal and Trish in St. Clair County. They had lost their kids to drug abuse. Cal lost his job. Trish lost her job. They had no way to care for their family, and so they did, unfortunately, what many did, and they started abusing substances. They lost all five of their children to the state, and their kids became ward of the states. They started getting their lives back together, but what they started to realize is actually Cal hated Trish, and Trish hated Cal, and they decided they didn't want to be married anymore. But they knew that if they got divorced, they may have a hard time getting their kids back out of state care. The last thing the judge told them that they needed to do was to attend a parenting class. There were only two parenting classes available, one in Montgomery and one in a local church there in St. Clair County. The one in Montgomery cost them $100, and they had to figure out how to get there. The one in St. Clair County was free, and someone would pick them up and take them. 
So they chose the one in St. Clair County. They went the first week skeptical, not knowing, sitting next to each other, but disliking each other greatly. They listened to the words, and one of the first words was, you are special and made in the image of God. Cal and Trish realized no one had ever looked at them and told them that they were special and made in the image of God. Everyone had always looked at them and said, you're the reason your kids are in care. You're the problem. Instead, they were told that they were created in the image of God. The next week, they came back, and the message was, you are created in the image of God, but you're also sinful. You've sinned, and you've fallen short of the glory of God. And through that, teaching them parenting classes, that night, Cal and Trish surrendered their life to Christ. They looked at each other and decided they wanted to work on their marriage. Fast forward three years later, Cal and Trish both have jobs that were recommended to them by their mentors from this church in St. Clair County. These jobs are well-paying. They have all five of their kids back. All five of their kids have surrendered their life to Christ. And Cal and Trish and their kids have shared the gospel with 21 of their family members and all have come to saving faith in Christ and been baptized in their church. Beloved, we have no idea what the Lord will do when we enter into his service to care for the needy and the vulnerable. And so let's begin to love and care for single parents and vulnerable families. And the third way that we can practically help the vulnerable and children is to open up our lives and our homes. Adoption, foster care, and respite care are ways to show the love of Christ to children. There are 153 million orphans around the world and 450,000 kids in U.S. foster care. It's not the responsibility of government or the secular society to care for these children, but it is the distinct responsibility of God's people. So this morning, as we close, I hope that we will be marked as humble followers of Christ. That one, understand who we really are. And beloved, maybe this morning you've never really understood who you really are. Yeah, you're created in the image of God. You're unique and you're special. But you also are a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But beloved, I hope this morning too that you can understand the greatness of our God. That while you are a sinner, that Christ set his face to Jerusalem and he set his face to you. In order that he would go and take on your sin and the punishment of your sin at the cross. And he didn't just die at the cross, he defeated death and he defeated the punishment for your sin so that you could live forever with him. Maybe this morning you've never come to the point of surrendering your life to the mission of Christ. We want to give you an opportunity. Our friends are going to come and and sing for us again. And as they do, we're going to be here at the front. And if you want to surrender your life to Christ, to lay down your pride, to say, "I'm, I'm tired of trying to live this life on my own. I'm tired of trying to be good enough. I'm trying to always be better. I'm trying to always tired of always trying to outrank. And you want to surrender that pride at the altar and follow Christ for the first time. We would be delighted. To lead you there. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and we want to invite you, if you've never laid down your pride at the altar of the cross, to do so this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Luke the physician who with great detail doesn't just tell us of the good moments, he doesn't just put the highlights, but he tells us the hard times, the hard moments, the moments when the disciples were fighting, the, the moments when the disciples were bickering. But Lord, what a, what a great thing that is that you add these things into your word so that we as your children can have a glimpse into the same struggles that, that these disciples had that still plague us. But Lord, there also may be those here that wandered into Northport Baptist Church this morning or maybe have been coming for years, but they're eat up with pride and sin and they never surrendered their lives to all-sufficient, marvelous, glorious grace of Christ Jesus. 
Lord, we pray that as we sing this next song, that you would, you would just touch their hearts and touch their lives and, and bring them to their feet and bring them to the altar to sacrifice their pride before the only one that can slay that pride and give them new and glorious life to be reoriented with the mission of God. So Lord, as we sing, we pray that you would move in the hearts and the minds of your people and of those that are here that need to become one of your children. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, thanks for joining the Defender Bible Study. And this week, we are praying for foster care in the country of the United States of America. We're praying for hosting churches and for the classes for the rest of the year at several churches in both Alabama and South Carolina. We're praying that the partnerships with DHR and DSS, that they will deepen and, and that they will strengthen. We pray for the children in care, for their salvation, for healing from the trauma that they have endured, for quick reunification when families are safe and supported, for adopted families when paternal rights have been terminated. We're praying for these birth families, for their salvation and for their motivation to accomplish their goals. We're praying for the current licensed foster families, for their dependence on Christ as they navigate difficult situations for foster families in process that their hearts will be burdened for the birth family and for reunification for more families to respond to the needs of older children sibling groups and medical special needs for upcoming live continuing education opportunities and in Birmingham and Huntsville in South Carolina for churches to care for child protective services and to share the burden with them for the churches involved in foster care to expand to holistic support of foster families and birth families. We praise the Lord for Lifeline's foster care team and for the way that they are surrounding the state and surrounding children and surrounding foster families and birth families. We praise the Lord for the number of families that are attending the upcoming classes and we praise the Lord for the churches that expressed interest and excitement in the Fostering Hope Package, which allows churches that aren't in our coverage area to, to learn how to grow and deepen their their impact in foster care, and we praise the Lord for over 40 graduates of foster parenting classes so far this year. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that there is an epidemic in our country, the United States of America. Uh, we know that children are being separated from their families at a rate that is sobering. And Lord, we just ask that you would intervene in this process. Lord, that you would awaken your church to what's going on, that you would help your church to grow, that you'd help your church to, to thrive in this time. And Lord, that you would use Lifeline as a ministry to make an impact and a difference. We thank you for these families and we thank you for their willingness to come forward. And we pray that you would use them for your glory, your honor, and your namesake to make a difference in the foster care crisis here in the United States. States of America. It's in your great name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining us for the Defender Bible Study. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Bible Study to make it easier for more people to find. For more resources and information on how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, please visit us at lifelinechild.org. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. We look forward to seeing you again next week for the Defender Bible Study.